0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From Atlanta, Georgia, the home of Super Bowl 53, the game, the events, the celebrations. This is a Business Radio special presentation of Wharton Moneyball on the Sirius XM stage on Radio
0: Row. Here are your hosts, Cade Massey, Adi Weiner, and Eric Bradlow. Welcome back. Welcome back to a special edition of Wharton Moneyball, a Thursday edition, an Atlanta, Georgia edition, a Super Bowl edition. We're down here, Kate Massey, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. We're down here on Radio Row, coming to you live in the midst of all the craziness down here, Fox Radio, CBS Sports, Twitter, Yahoo, everybody. SiriusXM has a big piece of real estate down here, multiple shows being broadcast at the same time. A lot of fun in advance of a lot of fun. This weekend's going to be a good time. We're trying to soak it all up, trying to talk to folks who are floating around here about football and sports analytics. Rolling into the second half now. We're delighted to welcome Bucky Brooks. Bucky, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Love having you, Bucky. Bucky is with the NFL Network, NFL Media. He's been there. Oh, Bucky, I just dropped it. How many years now? Ten years. Ten years. Ten
2: Ten years. Ten years. years. got a
0: decade. NFL Media, that's after a playing career and a scouting career. I believe you're out of UNC down in. Yep, Hill. And he was drafted, Eric, I don't know if you know this, he was drafted by our boys, the Buffalo Bills, in 1994. Bucky, Eric, and I both have connections. I lived in Buffalo for a couple of years. Oh, okay. You you got there, if I have my years right, you got there right after the four-year Super Bowl run. Yeah, right after the four-year Super Bowl run, but...
2: um, having played and having scouted, to see a team go four years in a row, you now have a greater appreciation. Like It's incredible. To, to, just think about the wherewithal to go, lose, and go, and lose, and go, and lose, and go, and lose, right. but to continue to bounce back. Um, they'll never get the credit. Uh, they're just due for being a dominant team because they didn't ultimately win the Super right. Bowl, right. but I don't think we'll ever see another team go four. Well, maybe, maybe, well, maybe Patriots, next year. Maybe the <laughs> Patriots go four straight. But just to think about going four straight Super Bowls, that's a level of
0: accomplishment that not many teams can. Uh, right. Off. And Bucky, I, I, when I saw that, I wondered you might have some insight into did they eventually did it eventually wear them down? And after four years, what was it like to walk into that clubhouse after four years of disappointment in the big game?
2: No, I don't think it was necessarily the disappointment that wore them down. But if you think about football in general, the average lifespan of players or playing career is three and a half years. So that four year period, they basically cycled out Okay. A number of players. And so you get old fairly quickly. A lot of Hall quickly. of Famers. Yeah, you get old fairly quickly in yeah. the league. And so when you look at the best players that they had Andre Reed and Jim Kelly, Kent Hall, Thurman, uh, Thomas. Thurman Thomas, uh, Bruce Smith. all the other Bruce Smith, at some point they were going to move out of their prime yeah, yeah, yeah. into
0: the backside of the career. And I think ultimately. That is what happened to the Buffalo Bills. Okay, Bucky. We want to hear about your work with the NFL media's, and we want to hear about scouting. A lot of we really want to dig into scouting, but we got to hear a little bit about your playing career because you were a kick return specialist, and to the casual fan, that looks like insanity. They're almost, I don't know which is more insane: punt return kick, punt return specialist, or kick return specialist.
2: Uh, you, you know, like I, I specialize in kick return. Kick return uh, to me was just easier because it's easier to field and catch a kickoff as opposed to a punt. Uh, punt returners will tell you that it's easier to return punts because if you're able to get past the first wave, it ends up being a bigger game. In today's game, like kick re- kick returners are really marginalized because people are always kicking in the end zone. People are letting mm-hmm. them take the touchbacks. It's not necessarily a big part of the game like the punt return is. So if you have a valuable punt returner, he is more valuable than what I see.
0: a kick returner Can you just
3: elaborate for me? I'm the, the football moron. That's the way they describe him. He's a, he's a um, baseball guy. But uh, you Bear with him. Why, why is it so different? Why, why can't it be the same person? I mean, what, are the, what sets can, of skills make it so different?
2: You can, you can have the same set of skills, but I, w- I would equate um, when you're a punt returner, it is more like playing in the outfield uh, in baseball. And so if you Thank think you. about trying yeah. to field or t- catch a, a high fly ball playing mm-hmm. center field and being able to track it, that is more like catching a punt. A kickoff is a little more linear. Um, You don't have to necessarily have great depth perception to be able to catch a kickoff. Um, In terms of hands and those things, like kickoffs are easier because the way they come down, you can kind of trap them against your chest. Punch, you have to have great hands. And so normally when we're scouting, we talk about multi-sport backgrounds. I typically wanted guys that played secondary and were return kicks that had a baseball background because Uh I knew they could track balls in the air. Well, so, Bucky, this
1: is a really a great point that you just brought up, which is I'll call it general athletic skills, especially for certain positions in the NFL. Could you uh, you just talk a little bit about it? Could you elaborate on that? Like as you're thinking about drafting someone for skilled positions? How important is it that they played multiple sports in your mind?
2: It's very, very important. Um, And I know we're kind of having a time when it comes to youth sports where guys are specializing. And what I would do is I would encourage younger players to play multiple sports because multiple sports allow you to develop different skills. So, for instance, for offense and defensive linemen, guys who have wrestling backgrounds, Are really, really intriguing. If you look at the Patriots, the Patriots have had offensive and defensive linemen that have been state champion wrestlers. They understand leverage. There's a level of strength and power. At wide receiver, basketball backgrounds are big. When you think about DeAndre Hopkins, DeAndre Hopkins was an accomplished basketball player. So When you see him make these contested catches with guys draped over him, it's very similar to making a rebound in basketball. Uh, Baseball players playing in the secondary, being able to track and judge balls. There is something to playing other sports that help you become really, really good at your mm-hmm. skills in football. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because there's, I mean, in the, in, the, in the elementary schools in
3: particular, it's this insane specialization. They play 30, 65 days, one sport. But the data analysts, like guys like us, who I haven't done this actually but I'm interested in, it, have argued exactly the opposite, that the best performance comes from people who play multiple sports.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And it's funny, when I talk to baseball um, general managers, scouts, They're saying that they're looking for guys that come from multi-sport backgrounds because guys who have been playing baseball in one sport the entire time, they have a tendency to be able to burn themselves out or kind of tap out what their development could be, whereas a guy that has played other sports and hasn't fully dedicated himself to one sport, there's still some potential, some developmental potential for them.
0: We're talking to Bucky Brooks. He's an analyst for NFL Network and NFL.com. He's also a former player before moving into pro personnel, scouting for the Seahawks and the Panthers. Can you tell us about that transition from player to scout and then now from scout to media? How did you do both of those steps?
2: Well, it was interesting because I always was fascinated by the team-building process. Even as a kid, I loved um, and always wondered how were championship teams constructed. Now, I'm a Carolina grad, but I grew up watching Carolina basketball. So okay. watching Dean Smith and the basketball team, how did he put it all together? And so I was always intrigued by that process. So when I became a player and I was playing in the pros, I made it known very, very early in my career, I would love to be on the other side. Oh, is that right? I would love to see um, what it's like to kind of put it together and have success. And because I played for a bunch of coaches that were either Hall of Fame coaches or Super Bowl winners.
1: I assume Marv Levy was. Marv
2: Levy, Mike Holmgren, uh, Marty Schottenheimer, Tom Coughlin. I've heard of them. Yeah, we've heard of them. So those were the guys that had an impact. And then Ron Wolf really impacted me because Ron Wolf, Hall of Fame uh, executive, he was one who encouraged me to move from wide receiver to defensive back. And then watching how he put together the 96 Super Bowl team for the Green Bay Packers, it just led me to want to kind of dive full feet in
0: into that that pro-personnel world. Got it. So I'm always kind of interested in why a guy decides to do pro-personnel versus college. So I I actually did college personnel.
2: And I would say the differences between pro-personnel and college personnel, pro-personnel is a little more apples to apples. I'm not projecting as much. It is really more so how does this guy fit into what we're doing. Okay. College, you are projecting what a kid could be and how he fits. So. Your misses are more drastic in college because they're more variables to why someone would succeed. Whereas a good pro scout should be able to just look at a player and say, hey, this guy fits what we do. Mm -hmm. We want to bring him in, and here's what his value is. Mm -hmm.
1: So, Bucky, I've always had the following view of, let's call it the human scouting element, the eyeball test, as they say, versus the data. I've always tried to say, like, I've done some work for the Eagles for a lot of years in scouting and other things, and one of the things I always said is if the eyeball says something and the data says something different, then that's the time to ask a question. Am I thinking about the data the wrong way? Like it's not like one or the other, but you know, if you know, if you're about to draft someone, and you know, you're working for the Seahawks or the Panthers, and say this guy's fantastic, and then you know, whoever the GM is looks at their sheet and says, "Wow, the data doesn't suggest the same thing." That's the time in that quick interval to ask a question. How do you think about Absolutely. it?
2: Absolutely, it it should be complementary. Like you don't necessarily work against each other. Like you can't just always rely strictly on the eyeball test and say, "Well, I see." His, his, his size, I see his speed, I see those things, he should be a good player. At some point you want to see production to back that up. And also when it comes to analytics and there's some baseline things when it comes to physical dimensions and characteristics that you would like guys to hit. Um, having not worked on it, but having learned a lot from Ron Wolf and his disciples, John Snyder and Scott McLuhan and some of those other guys, we were very, very big on a standard list of measurements that guys had to hit. For instance, we wanted cornerbacks that were 5'10 or taller. We wanted um, offensive tackles who may be 6'4 or taller and had a certain wingspan or Mm -hmm. length because on average – those were the guys that played in the league and so it doesn't mean that you can't have exceptions but what you're trying to do is you're trying to give yourself the best chance mm-hmm. to get it right and a lot of times when you look at who has played in the league and how they perform those guys give you an opportunity mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. it right
0: how do you, how has your evaluation of players changed over time you've been doing this now for you know inside the league and then with the nfl um for over 15 years so how have how have you evolved as a scout
2: the league has changed a lot, and I think in the last couple of years we've seen the league change even more. I think Baker Mayfield going number one overall right. kind of signaled a changing of the guard of the, at the league level right. when it comes to standard dimensions. You were surprised, right? I was, I was surprised because we had never seen a guy of his stature go mm-hmm. at that. Now, I know Michael Vick went, but the difference was Michael Vick was an A-plus athlete. Mm-hmm. Michael Vick had remarkable physical traits that led you to believe, like, yeah, I know he may be a little height deficient, but this other stuff makes up for it. Mm -hmm. Baker Mayfield was a good player. We could even say he was a great player in college, but he didn't have physical skills that necessarily wild you. So to see a guy who was an undersized quarterback by standard dimensions go number one strictly on what he did on the field, Mm -hmm. that was uncommon. Mm -hmm. But now he has opened the door for other teams to be daring and to take a guy who may not necessarily fit a standard, which bodes well for Kyler Murray and some of the other guys. I was just
1: saying, we're sitting here on SiriusXM here at the Super Bowl, and Kyler Murray is one of the guests. I was going to ask you, how do you think? think of Kyler Murray?
2: Well, I mean, I think Kyler Murray absolutely has the talent to be a first-round pick, and I think if you look at his numbers, and multi-sport Baker, athlete, multi-sport athlete, the fact that if you go back and you talk to people in Texas, how he performed in a, as a high school, some would say he may have been the best high school player to ever play in the state of Texas.
0: Just real clear, he, he had three straight national champions in the Biggest uh, division, the 6A division.
2: 6A division. So he may be the best player to ever play high school ball. And then when you look at the fact that he is a world-class player, he is a guy who is worthy of being a first-round pick in baseball, you see the speed, then you look at the numbers. Production-wise, they're very comparable to what Baker Mayfield. When you look at the eyeball test and you look at the film, you're like, he's a wild player. You have to think (laughs) that he is going. And the only reason you can kind of ding him is because he doesn't make He doesn't meet an acceptable standard when it comes to the height. But how much do you think of –
1: let's even imagine – I do agree with you, but let's imagine I agree with you and I say he could be fantastic – but what about the length of his career? Do you start to think, you know, what because he's a smaller size player, he's not Ben Roethlisberger size, where he may be great for three years, but he just gets hit once or twice. He's well, not six five. Well, can two, I, can six, I ask three, you
0: real quickly though? We don't, no. It doesn't have to be a hypothetical about Murray. No, no, we've no. Got, we've got Lamar Jackson, kind of playing it out right now. He's not as big a guy, and he's taking a lot of hits.
1: So, yeah. So how do you trade off in some sense? Well, his I mean, peak I've, is really high, but his length may be really so, short. If so, you like.
2: So, so here's. The thing, and I wonder what is going to happen with the league, and this is something that kind of falls in your guys' wheelhouse. Um, Quarterbacks, once they they make a certain amount of money, it is hard to build the rest of the team. And so we've seen of late the Philadelphia Eagles. We're looking at the Rams. We're looking at some of these other teams. They're winning with quarterbacks on small deals. Will we ever get to a point where teams are beginning to cycle out the quarterback position where we look at other positions because – there are They're, only a handful of real elite quarterbacks. So what if someone was on the forefront and said, we're going to treat quarterback like another position every five or six years? We're going to get a new we'll one. Turn it well, I know what you think of that. And Kate. we'll continue to keep that, that number
3: low so, so we can build up the rest of so the team. So I'm wondering, like, first, Kyler Mary, I have two questions about Kyler. I'm very interested in because he has a, a baseball contract, and we don't know what he's going to actually do. So he's very, I mean, on, uh, for quarterbacks, he's absolutely on the short side. He's 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, how many successful, just a baseline, this is the first thing we do with statisticians, as a baseline, how many 5'9 quarterbacks have had a successful careers in the not, NFL? Not, not many. I mean, I, don't think, I, don't any? Think we, I don't think we've had any. Yeah, I think do you consider
2: you, Doug Flutie successful? You would have to point to Doug Flutie. Like, even if you go to Meh. the sub-six, yeah. it would be the Doug Fluties, the Russell Wilsons, um, Drew Brees falls in at six, and Michael Vick, but... and 5'9", it's not six. It's, it's but, an exception. But, Bucky, it's an exception.
0: how successful would Doug Flutie have been, another Buffalo connection, by the way, if we Today. pulled him into 2019? Uh, well, he'd, he'd be very be, successful. He'd be more because successful, the, right?
2: The game, the game plays to those strengths, and so the thing that we're having to do is we have to look at, okay, this is the player. How are teams going to use the player? Before, it was all about old school was, this is my system. I need you to fit my system. New school is oh, this is what you do well, I'm going to build what we do around what you do really, really F- well. Fantastic. Can you do that Fantastic. every five
3: years? I mean, well, is I that something that's uh, practical? So, so I, think,
2: I think looking at the team that is without question the best team in the league, the New England Patriots, the New England Patriots have shown you that you can adapt and evolve. Let's just look at what Tom Brady has been able to do over 18 years. He came in as a game manager midway through the year. He became – midway through his career, he became the playmaker. And now as he's closing his career – He is back to still being more the game manager. Great coaches are able to evolve and adapt. That's how you have to succeed. So, Bucket, in the
1: you sure you're not a statistician like us? I'll tell you why. <laughs> what you said was really interesting because you said, "Look, there's only a few real elite quarterbacks. You can figure that out in five and six years. If it is, then spend the money. But if not, there's this whole let's call it indifferent set of quarterbacks where one's as good as another. Why not just keep cycling through until you find one? Are you sure you're not a statistician? I mean, I pay
2: close <laughs> attention to it because I have always wanted. There has not been a quarterback that has been a $20 million quarterback that has won a Super Bowl. Once they get paid, it changes the way that you have to build the rest of your team. So if someone's on the front end where either they cycle them out or they hold a hard line, this is what we allot to the quarterback, and you take it or we move on to the next one. No one has been bold enough to do that, but I think the sweet spot at quarterback is 18, 19, 19. Million dollars. Tom Brady's right at twenty. Mm-hmm. They've been able to be successful because they're able to manage all the other areas of the team. Mm-hmm. We'll, uh,
3: will, will if Kyler Murray does get drafted, will they be able to match a salary he pulled from the Oakland A's? Oh, and he'll
2: make more money playing football right than, away. Than baseball, mm-hmm. yeah, right away. Lamar Jackson was guaranteed right around seven to eight million dollars. So by going to the, the bottom
1: of the first bottom round. of the
2: first round. So if Kyler Murray gambles and goes in the first round. Right away, he makes more money than he would make in baseball. And he's got to give
3: back his bonus if he does that.
2: So we're right, right now, the only thing he has taken, he's taken a million dollars, and there's 3.1 left if he kind of comes in in March. He gives that money back, but he'll more than make that if he's a first-round pick.
0: B- Bucky, we approach player evaluation more analytically. I like to think that we're humble about it. I like to think we've learned by experience that our models are limited. you're not coming at it from that perspective. You've played. Mm -hmm. You evaluate these guys with much more expertise than we can. What would you tell the analytics community about how we can be better? Like, what are we missing? What are we getting wrong? How could we be more valuable to a person like you or to the guys, the traditional scouts Mm -hmm. in the team, with the teams?
2: Man, it's really tough because I feel like there's been this line in the sand where you have the football players or the football guys and then what they call the stats guys or the geeks. And I think (laughs) – The teams that get it right will find a happy median where they can blend the data with the film. And the good evaluators are able to kind of lean on that. It can't necessarily be all one way or the other, but I think a good blend can help you. We always talk about cross-checking and being able to check off all the boxes, where if there is something that stands out um, from an analytic standpoint that gives you pause, Well, that means we need to discuss it, we need to look at the tape, and then kind of figure out how to go about it when it comes to this player.
0: You've worked, you've talked to a lot of quants and and stats and and geeks, and what would you say characterize those that you find most productive to talk to versus those that you don't have as much productive conversations with?
2: Uh, I I think if you can take what the numbers say and back it up with a little, I don't know, like what I call film data or being Mm -hmm. able to kind of just show... Because I think we're visual. So, so football guys are visual. So if you can show them where it comes, that's when you get them. Mm-hmm. One of the best things I like to look at, which would fall under the analytics crowd, would be the, what we call the, the hit chart from quarterbacks. So when you see the charts where they target balls over the field, yep. that stuff is real. Because way back even in the late 90s, we were using those things to see where the people catch balls, where the quarterbacks like to throw, yep. and those things. Those things matter, and they make coaches and players Mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm.
1: So, Bucky, I've always wanted to ask someone that scouts this question. Let's just, for simplicity, imagine there's three dimensions of quality of a football player. Would you rather have someone that's a 7-7-7 out of 10 on those three dimensions or someone that's a 5-5-10? Like, are we now in a league where you can be great at one thing and okay at others, or would you rather have someone that's just above average on all?
2: I'd rather be great at one thing Mm -hmm. and have a coaching staff that is able to adapt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The thing that I've... What I've learned, I hate to keep bringing up the New England Patriots, but Bill Belichick, the reason the Patriots are able to succeed with guys that don't necessarily work other places, he only asked them to do what they do really well. And mm-hmm. the great coaches understand it. if I always put my guy in a position to succeed, he won't fail. And so I would rather have a guy that is an A-plus talent in one area and use him as a specialist because the league is really a league full of specialists. The great coaches understand it, and mm-hmm. they're humble enough to – choke down their system or tailor their mm-hmm. system to mm-hmm. give their best players the best opportunity to play to their strengths.
0: Well, you're taking us back to the Pats, and of course, they're playing the game Sunday. How will you take in the Super Bowl? How do you think you watch it any differently than the average fan, and do you have any rooting interest He's, in that? Are you allowed to have a rooting interest? No, so, predicting I, the Pats. So, I, so I actually will be
2: working for Sky Sports in the UK, Okay. and what be, I'm, I'm fascinated by a couple of different things. I'm fascinated by the fact that the Patriots have been able to evolve They've even evolved over the last four weeks. They went from being a team that was thrown around the yard to, hey, the Buffalo Bills game, week 16, we need to run the football. Everyone else is playing spread, three receivers, four receivers. The Patriots have turned back the clock and become more of a two-back traditional team. And I what, told you, Bucky, and I agree. <laughs> this is what and, I've been yeah. saying. And what happens is all of these teams that built their defenses to stop the spread sets – They now can't stop old-school power football. Mm -hmm. The one thing that Bill Belichick has been able to recognize is when everyone is zigging, they zag. Mm -hmm. And that's what works for them. But he will meet a guy in Sean McVay who is outstanding at creating opportunities for his guys. Mm -hmm. What they do with the play-action passing game, Mm -hmm. faking the ball to the running backs, and then throwing the ball down the field, they're terrific. They also keep six and seven men in for pass protection. So what that ensures is that their quarterback is always protected. He doesn't take sacks, and he's able to push the ball down the field. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing in the league, when you guys study all of the quarterbacks, you'll notice that when people throw deep, they're keeping six and seven in. When they throw short, they're releasing everybody out. Mm-hmm.
0: That has been the new trend that's kind of evolved mm-hmm. in the league. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Listen, Bucky, we, we love the visit with you. Appreciate you taking time out of this busy week to be with us.
2: Hey, thanks so much for having me on. I loved it.
0: Absolutely. Bucky Brooks, NFL Network Analyst, former NFL cornerback and kick returner. He was with the pro personnel departments at both Carolina and Seattle. Enjoyed the last visit with you, Bucky. We're delighted to have Alex Anthopoulos join us. Alex is the EVP and general manager of the Atlanta Braves. Local team, local baseball team here, they've done a few things. Alex is just wrapped up his first year after previously working with the Dodgers, and before that, he was maybe the youngest GM ever at 32 when he was in that role with the Toronto Blue Jays. But, Alex, we appreciate you stepping out of your normal day and joining us. Glad to be on. Thanks for Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. What's what's the rhythm right now in the baseball world? We're you know football is all about super pitchers Bowl.
3: and catchers are reporting in about two <laughs> weeks. I think.
0: How has it yeah. been for you in the last in the last little stretch?
4: Yeah, it's been. I mean, right now, like guys just brought up. We have spring training in about two weeks, so there's um, still a lot of free agents out there. So still monitoring that market. Still having conversations, and teams are still engaged in some trade dialogue. Um, and at the same time, before spring training, normally you get trying to work on some things in terms of um, staffing, infrastructure. We just had um, you know, some meetings with our amateur scouting department because they are basically um, have gotten started getting ready for the amateur draft in June. And we just wanted to get, uh, get together as, as a group, so spent the day doing that. But um, really at this point, it's a lot of tying up loose ends uh, more than anything else before we head off to spring training.
0: Alex, how, how much of the restructuring and putting into place what you want to put into place can you do in that first season, and how much do you still have to do when you roll out of that first season and you've got, you know, do you feel like it's in place, or is that an ongoing process? How much of it, are you still kind of, I'm still the new guy, still changing things up right now?
4: Yeah, I think it's an ongoing process. I think one thing is you have to be careful. You don't want to make change for the sake of change, so... You know there's a lot of really good things that are already in place a lot of great work was done before i even got here so um i wasn't going to look to come in and make changes because you know i was in the position and i just got the job so it was my i didn't think anyone needed to adjust to me i needed to adjust to them um and you know where i thought maybe we can add some things or tweak some things great but it was my i viewed it as i was just here to learn the organization to learn everybody that was here uh, try to make some decisions on is everybody in the right role? Are they happy doing what they're doing? Um, and that was really it. So the bulk of the work was staffing, infrastructure, um, you know, m- making sure we had the right setup and so on. But you're not going to do it all in, over, in, you're not going to do it all overnight. And it's a gradual thing. And the priority is always the big league team. Uh, yep. but at the same time, you know, there's other departments that we're going to work on and you're not right. going to, really tweak them all in one one year, but slowly but surely, I think we're in a much better position as an organization today than we were when I first started.
0: Alex, I can imagine that you approached the general manager position a little differently this time than the first time out, when you were, you were such a young guy and it was your first time in the job. Can you give us an example of something you're going about differently this time because of your experience since then?
4: Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, can't replicate experience. Um, and really, can't you can't really have it. Have the opportunity to make some some mistakes. So you know, everyone's always said it, it's a cliche, but that's the greatest learning tool that you can have. So seems like anything you learn to delegate more, um, you work in a much more intelligent manner. You manage time a lot more. Uh, and I think I've just learned to be more more patient overall, and you don't concern yourself as much with. With the noise, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. Outside factors and so on. Um, you know, you put pressure on yourself, no matter what, as a competitor. But I don't feel pressure from a media standpoint, fan base standpoint. Um, I think you just become very comfortable in your own skin and you do what you feel is right. And you know is right. Um, and, and ultimately, it doesn't mean the decision is always going to work out. But if you feel like your process is sound. And get get things for the right right reasons. I mean, put your head put your head on the pillow at night. So um, I don't know that there's one specific thing. I just would think that um, I've just become more patient overall, and I'm not as I, I'm not in the same rush. And I realize I have a better sense of the flow of the job and the pace of the job.
3: Yep. So, Alex, this is Adi Weiner. I'm really, uh, you know, we're we're a all sports show, and this is kind of the doldrums for baseball. We, you know, have yet to start spring training, and we're in the height of Super Bowl um, kind of uh, frenzy here. But we usually like to think a little bit about free agent signings during the off season, and this has been a slow one. And you guys are, you know, your surprise uh, leaders in the in the National League East. The Nationals were expected to win; they they did not do well. That's, I want to ask you about free agents in general, why, why, the, why the superstars in particular haven't been signed and what your view is on that. But also think about your, your chief competitor in, in the National League. I'm not thinking about the Phillies. I'm thinking about the Nationals in the East. Is, is the Nationals, would they be better off not signing Harper? Or which would you like to see from your perspective? Them Harper coming back to the Nationals or going to, say, the Phillies or, or outside of your division completely?
4: Yeah, I mean, just, as a general rule of thumb, any great players, we'd rather not have them in the division. I mean, those players, guys like Bryce Harper and so on, they make teams better no matter which teams they are. So, um, you know, it's hard to give a reason why certain guys haven't signed. Normally, elite free agents that are 26 and best players in the game, those are normally long, um, significant contracts that take some time to get done. So... Um, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that every team in baseball would love to have those guys. At the same time, you know, based on past contracts and so on, those players will, you know, will most likely get pretty significant deals. So, um, I don't think it's for lack of demand. I think it's obviously two parties being able to come together and everybody agreeing on the value. So, it happened last offseason. Hugh Darvish got a big contract. That one took a little bit of time. Chief Harrietta got a big contract. That one got done in March. Um, sometimes these things just take time, but in terms of our division, I say all the teams. You, know, if you look at the mat, Nationals and one, the Mets, Philadelphia is going to continue to get better, and they've already made a lot of moves to get better. Um, you know, we think we're a better club, and we need improvement from our young players. But you know, the one thing, as many as much as people will have their have their projections and so on, we have no idea who's going to stay healthy, and you know, some guys will have down years that you wouldn't expect. And some players will emerge that no one. Expected it as well I mean every playoff needs to have a feel good story that comes out of nowhere so um, it's a long year it's six months but I think all four of us right now have a chance to win the division
1: so Alex this is Eric brother I want to ask you uh, we've talked about this on our show Wharton Moneyball, quite often it's not necessarily that people don't think uh, Machado or Harper etc deserve whatever the number is per year it's really the number of years so how do you think of age curves? Um, when you're thinking about the Braves, because this is one of the challenges that you know many teams face, is that um, players want to get signed until they're mid to late 30s. So, how do you guys broadly think about age curves?
4: I think it's a combination of things when you're looking at contract lines. There's no doubt age is part of it. Um, so you're looking at age curves and so on. So the other component, if you put age aside, the longer the deal, more things can happen, irrespective of age. Guys can get hurt. You just don't know. There's been, there's been a lot of examples of players, you know, they, they blow out of knee, and something happens where it's not an injury that ends their career, but it impacts their, their, their performance and their ability to play. So, so the longer you commit to something like that, you know, to guarantee it, there's obviously more risk regardless of how young, how young the player is. So no doubt I think the number one factor everyone does take a look at is what years are you tying up the player, what years are you going to have, to look at body types and so on and performance and today curves and how other players um have evolved and performed and put it all together but you know, when you're talking about really long contracts no one has really the ability to really project what's going to happen down down mm-hmm. the road but it's, in, it's a free market it's competitive and ultimately once you get these deals done you end up having any significant dollars in that term
3: so, Alex, uh, one of the things that in my research we've studied is age curves, and and I can tell you that historically the age peak, age for a, particularly a hitter who might be around, even a pitcher might be around 30, but it seems anecdotally that in the last five years in particular, five, six years, too short to really get a full trajectory for these players, there's been a huge shift word. Uh, south and so, my question to you as a so you're GM, saying the peak is now earlier. Is, but no, I, I don't know when it's if it's if it's yet. I, that's really my question. I don't. The data is uh, yet to really be deterministic. Well, how do you feel as a GM? Do you think that the, the the contemporary professional Major League Baseball player' his peak is now lower than it used to be?
4: I I think it's like you said. I think the data is still evolving. There's been certainly a lot of changes to the game. Um, I think from a positional standpoint, uh, it's impacted as well. Center fielders and so on I mean they may get to their peak in their late late 20s and defense is a big part of it defense is a big part of the evaluation as well and we're, we're trying to quantify the total worth of the player it's not just what we think they'll do in the box or what they'll do on the mound you know what other aspects do they bring so um, I think most teams would tell you they view it as late 20s it's only 30 um, you know I wouldn't argue with you but I, I, I would generally agree that I think most teams would tell you peaks are more in that 28,
0: 29 range. Wow. So maybe down a year or two, but. It's so interesting because it goes against all those advances in sports science where there were better longevity, better, you know, injury prevention, all those kinds of things we think are happening through advanced sports science, but there are other forces apparently going in the other direction.
3: I'm, I'm surprised. So I mean,. That, I mean yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised to see this. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it on the field. I feel like, but I also think that you you touched on the idea of defense, which is really a speed and agility, deterministic. And I think for baseball players, you your experience and, and strength would grow into your early 30s, and that compensated. But I think the today's experts, and I think what you what you recognize is those less. Measurable, or at least historically less measurable, aspects have become more paramount, I and mean, you can really measure how much how much value a, a center fielder brings mm-hmm. and a shortstop brings. And I think that that we see that it's that younger is better.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: So yeah, we're talking to Alex Anthopoulos.
4: Yeah, you can look at reaction times, all kinds of things as players get get older, and those are all things as you age. And playing 162 games, you know, very few players play every single game, but. The grind of the season, to be the ability to, re, to be able to recover, uh, maintain your stamina, strength, and so on. That obviously plays into the performance and impacts it as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Alex Anthopoulos. He's the executive vice president and general manager for the Atlanta Braves, local Major League Baseball team. Of course, he was with LA for a few years before, I mean, after GMing Toronto Blue Jays at the young age of 32. He's just finished his first season. Kind of a surprising breakout season for the Braves in some sense. Uh, Alex, can you talk to us about analytics in baseball these days? We're, you know, we're mostly an analytics show. We all do analytics, both in our research and in our consulting into professional sports. Baseball is generally characterized as being the most advanced. They were certainly the first to kind of dig deeply into it. What, where, what is the frontier for analytics in baseball right now? What are they pushing? What is hard? Where is the next margin that's going to deliver value for teams?
4: Yeah, I don't. I mean, in fairness, I, I probably wouldn't want to. Get into um, specifics, and well, I guess what my thought is, or where I think things are going, or where the competitive advantages there are. But and I can tell you, all 30 clubs are very competitive. I think people are adding staff, adding a lot of dollars. There's so much data right now. Uh, the ability to synthesize that data, the ability to make it actionable for the players, is really important. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's examples. You know, every. Every organization will tell you that there's R&D departments and analytics departments, but how are they synthesizing that data? Not everyone will position players the same
0: way defensively.
4: There's advantages Mm -hmm. there. Not every team can maybe deliver it to the players to make it actionable and be able to apply it or have have co-coaches and so on. Um, I say just speaking more in general terms, I think um, the, the, the current trend, uh, right now is to really have things and information and data infiltrated into, mi- into the minor league the player development. I mean, it's really an extension of what's going on at the big league level, but I think more and more is being done at the minor league level, and I think it is changing uh, the coaches that are being hired, um, the things that teams are starting to focus on and so on. Um, but it is extremely competitive and I think everyone's looking for every edge that they can get, whether it's international scouting, amateur scouting, player development, all areas it's growing very fast.
0: Alex, can you talk to us at all? We don't want you to reveal anything that that Atlanta's doing uniquely, but but say motion tracking for example. It's a it's a it's a technology that has you know, it's you can imagine in Infinite relevance to basketball, hockey, and even football. It seems less relevant to baseball, but I'm guessing that you guys are finding ways to use this. In what, how big a role do you think motion tracking data will play in player evaluation and development going forward in baseball? I think it's
4: playing. It's currently playing and it's going to continue to play a big, a big role. There's a lot that you can do with it. Um, again, how teams decide to apply it, use it, and so on. You know that's Needs to make those determinations, um, but I, I certainly think it's being done, uh, and I think I think it's going to con- continue to grow.
0: So, uh, there's a little bit of something. I've heard a couple of people talk about Acuna, your young player. What, how, how, what are you looking for him from him this year, or, or flip it around? Was there anything that you think you did in particular to to identify him, um, or what traits led you to pull him up at such a young age? You know, he was
4: a highly touted prospect. And when I joined the organization, everybody talks about him. He had a chance to be a great and impactful player. He really uh, ran through the minor leagues in 2017.
0: Never stayed at a level
4: for an extended period, uh, but continued to have some success. And you know, even when he started the season off in the minor leagues last year, got off to a really slow start. Finally, when he got hot and started to get going over maybe a 10-day period, he was hit the ball hard. The quality of his at-bats were good. And he was in a good place, we thought, from a mental standpoint. Um, just from the, his play, he finally, we felt, was locked in. That was the time to call him up. He was feeling good about himself. And it also coincided with us having a need at the big, big league level. So he came up, uh, did a fantastic job for us the entire year, started out very strongly, then hit a little bit of a low, and made some changes to his swing, uh, which, which ultimately uh, led to him to really flourish the last few months of the year. I would say going into 2019, you now we're hopeful and optimistic that offensively he can continue to perform the way he did, make strides and you know, hopefully maintain close to the level of play he had. I think the one area that he still has quite a bit of room to grow is his defense in the outfield. Uh-huh. Primarily was a, he primarily was a center fielder his entire career in the minor leagues we explored him in the left field a little bit in the in the minors last year and it was still some moments where just The nuances of the position, the familiarity of the the position, that's something that he has the tools and the ability to be a fantastical left fielder. Um, He should be one of the best left fielders, but I think that's going to come in time and with work and repetitions and so on. But that would be the one area that we'll talk to him about spring training that we'd like for him to really uh, spend some time on.
0: Well, it's fun for us to get a little lowdown on one of the most exciting young players in the league, and we'll watch his development with interest going forward. Listen, Alex, we know you're busy. We very much appreciate you taking your time out to, to join us on the show. We wish you the luck wish you luck getting the team off on a good start this year. Oh, oh I want okay. to tell you one Thank thing. You I, sure. I don't want to overpromise, but two years ago, the only other time we've done this show, we were in Houston, and we had on this show, in the same segment, Jeff Luno.
3: So that bodes well if you believe a sample size of one projects into the future.
0: After that interview, yeah, yeah. they went on to win the World Series. We're, right. we're just saying. We're just saying now. If
3: that happens, I'll,
4: I'll be glad to come on the
0: following year, too. <laughs> All right. We'll hold you to that. Very good. All right. Alex Anthopoulos, thanks for joining us. All right, guys. Um, General manager from the Atlanta Braves here talking about what he's doing in the offseason. Anything to jump out to you about that conversation?
3: Well, one of the things that is interesting about baseball is there's so much insider information. And they're all so tight-lipped about what they do with no, their analytics, no. and there's a as a Twitter feed meme going around that if I go to another statistics meeting that, that involves baseball and someone from the team stands up and says I can't reveal my data, <laughs> uh, we're just going to just throw you out. And there's just so much of that, which is in so contrast to the old days where all the work in baseball analytics came from publicly available data by non-professional people. I mean, Bill James got his start writing writing. Well, Ado, you're
0: you're whinging, but you understand. Right? I understand um, the, completely, but the it's, I, it's
3: frustrating for. Yeah. The, for the academics we used to be the forefront of yeah. analytical um, contributions in baseball and now we are clearly taking back gotta go, because gotta, i don't have the the, the data you got to go work for the Braves i got to go work for the Braves <laughs> yes
0: all right guys we're down to just you know 10 minutes or so and i want to dig a little more into the game i'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on the game talk a little football talk rams and pats what else is there to say about this game
3: i'm curious to know how you guys have thought about it since we talked about it yesterday we've Prepared for today, and has, have you changed any? I and mean, I'm the only one of the four of us who went who went for the Rams. So maybe um, have you guys moved a little bit? Is there anything well, you to so any about? So look,
0: I, I, uh, what I always wanted because this, this this the conversation over the last week among ourselves, but also more broadly, was about how the Pats had started out slow and then really kind of turned it on mid-season, and they were finishing strong. And even in the in the show earlier in our conversation with Bucky, he was talking about. They've evolved late in the season, just within the last few games they're evolving. And then the story is exactly the opposite with the Rams, where you know people are giving stats on how Goff played in the first half of the year and how much of the stats don't look good, comparing his second-half nope. performance against his first. And so what we do at Massey Peabody is we have the power rankings, of course, and we predict games, but we also evaluate each game using our same model. So it's basically saying, look, a lot of noise happens in a game, if we just looked at the parts of the game that predict future performance, how would we score the team? So we give these game grades. And so we finally track those down for the year and look at the trend in these two teams. And of course, the first thing you notice, you look at this thing and it's noisy as hell. You know, I mean, the, the teams bounce Not around. a lot of, of data course. points. There's a lot of variance. There's a lot of variance. And so you've got to accept that and, you, and, and that may limit how strong an inference you want to draw from it. But if you dig into it, and you kind of eyeball these data. It's pretty clear. The one thing that's clear is that the broad trend is negative for the Rams. They're playing worse over time. The, granted, it's noisy; it's not monotonic, nothing like that.
3: And but, it's not even that huge. I no, mean, it's, they, they were exceptional in a relative to the to the Patriots in the very beginning.
0: I, I kind of disagree with you. If you draw a trend line through there, audio we're going to say there. Let's just say that, that if you smooth those data, you're going to start out around plus ten or so. That's ten points. Expected win over the average team in the NFL, which is a very high number. And it's going to drift down by the end of the season. Wow. They're in like one, two, three, three. You know, that, that's like almost a touchdown difference over the course of 16 weeks. D- well, they D- had D- a
3: ter- tremendous game in week 16 against Arizona. Yeah,
0: well, there's, there's uh, variance. These things bounce Also against around. Arizona. What a I horrible would say, team.
1: What I would say I've learned from both on-air and off-air of the two of you talking about this is I agree with Cade. The one thing I've seen is it's more clear from the data that the Rams have declined over the season. Now, Adi said something in the first half hour that's probably, now I'm evolving towards this. I don't know that the Patriots have gotten better. I know their variance has gotten lower. That's true. And I think what, because if you look at the, the Patriots the first half of the season, they had a bunch of good games and a bunch of awful games. But now, by the end of the season, they're just having all bunches of good games. Now, what's ended up happening as a result, the Patriots have overtaken the Rams. And so the Patriots are, I mean, their estimate, according to Massey Peabody, but they're I'm sure. are still mean, behind.
3: I think you're two and a half points yeah. in yeah. favor of the Rams. No, currently. but but
1: we talked about that on the air yesterday. That's partially because of the amount of updating. Like maybe it's yep. too smooth. It can't, it's putting too much weight on the passes. No, but, his,
3: but his system doesn't. Which, is, is, that, which is, is, is based on the entirety of their data set, which is right. yours. That's right. And that's he has right. he has weights, and his so, weights say
0: what they say yeah that's right but now now inevitably i mean we we have to tune that thing for the average team and so that's the right. question is whether there's something unusual about these two teams in either but direction you
3: get to do that every year and you but and you've and you've played
0: with it and you've decided against that uh, no no and this is it's, you don't decide against it you can only we only have one parameter you can't you can't only have so many degrees of freedom in football but you still have to decide as if you're gonna when you come to make the prediction You say do you believe in the model exclusively or do you recognize the model's missing this one thing? It's a real thing in the world, and we're missing it, and therefore we kind of have to kind of subjectively smudge the data over a little bit. Now, you've, you've learned that you don't do that very often. You learn over yes. time that you usually make a mistake when you do that. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible. That doesn't mean that we have it all pinned down, because we know for a fact we let don't me, have it let all me ask pinned something
1: down. something that we talk about on this show all the time. How certain are you? So if I asked each of you not to predict the winner of the game, but to predict what is your confidence interval about the score difference in the game. Like, for example, let's call plus the Patriots and let's call minus the Rams. How large an interval would you have to construct that you're 95% confident you've captured the score difference? Because what I'm hearing lots of things about is people want to use all kinds of stats. The Patriots have never played in a Super Bowl. Forget winning. Just played in a Super Bowl. The score difference has been more than 7. So is it, if I gave you plus 7 to minus 7, are you 95%? You know what? Hold on a second. I want
3: to do do this. It's a great thing, and and I've learned a little bit that if I hear you and you hear me, we'll change. So I'm actually asking (laughs) you to write your number down. A ninety-five ex- percent prediction interval, and I want your plus or minus. So it's a number. Okay. okay. And, and you we have don't to even help care me. about the but about your forecast. But no, but Audie, you, you to have to help or me, or me or
0: because I, you're, my, you're my statistical calculator. So remind me I for I the NFL. <laughs> if we if we knew for a fact that the if we knew for a fact for a fact that the true difference between these two teams was zero, right? Then what would the interval be? Just what we know from standard deviations and NFL scores. 95% confidence interval, if we knew for a fact. Okay, now you're going to, yeah,
3: so I can tell you that. Uh, that's why I'm asking but you. But remember, this is not, I can only tell you that fact on average for all teams. I hear you. And that but is about 13. 13. 13 For points. for No, that's the standard deviation. For the difference. For the difference. That's the difference. And that's only one standard deviation. So that so would get you 68% of the probability.
0: So you need 26 points to get <laughs> 95%?
3: <laughs> Apparently, yeah. It seems crazy, but remember, ninety five percent is all but one, all but one game in a season. Yeah, ninety five is
0: okay, Eric. Hugely, well, I'm, so, so wide. It, but, but let me. Do, we're trying to answer Eric's question. We've already kind of blown one our own minds with just, it. So, we, the first, the starting place. I'm saying the starting place. Just from facts, is that if you thought these teams, for, if you knew equal, these teams were right. equal, you would say there's a I need twenty six point range to cover ninety five percent. And then you get to Eric's question, which is. How confident are you that they're relatively equal? And that's going to that's stretch it out even more. So
3: let's just put it into hard form. Basically, if the two teams are equal, one in 20 matches against them will result in a, in a game that's more than 26 points apart.
0: Which right. is not so unusual. That's, that's what happens. N- now it sounds about right. Yep. I mean, but to be fair, I mean, a 26-point D- d- one in t- twenty times you between have a teams that are blowout. equal. I mean, consider the Clemson Alabama college football game. Now that's a, even a, that's a different sport with higher right. variation, but that's an example of a team. Those teams were pretty equal, yep. and it was kind of a blowout.
3: But how about okay? So then, the, didn't the Eagles play the Rams, and they got destroyed early in the season?
0: They got destroyed by the Saints also. The Saints. The, the
3: Saints. they got destroyed, and they played it mm-hmm. right to the to the wire at the mm-hmm. end. And, and some would say Char- that, Chargers got blown out by the Pats. Right, in, in, the, in, the, in the divisional so even round the final score wasn't equal. as
1: much as the game was a blowout but yes, okay. the Chargers got up to so, 24 points at the end
3: just, so essentially, it would be very hard to surprise me but only because I'm an ignorant fool
1: yeah, so <laughs> without, the data, without the data I would have said if you give me 14 and a half that has a 95% chance. And you're saying it's way too narrow. Way too narrow. Way too narrow.
0: And I think the general
3: public... So what's interesting, of course, is the overs. The overs are, are... One of the interesting oddities of mathematics is that the variability in the over... Is just about equal to the variability in the difference. Yeah, you told me that this week, and that's based on the. They're most. They're not completely, but they're closely. Independent. You mean in the total score? Yes, the total. The total score. The variance in the total is almost the same as the variance in the in the, uh, difference. In the difference. But the betting public and the public doesn't realize that they think there's much more variance in the over.
0: Yeah, it, intuitively, that's what you think. Absolutely, you think that's That's right. So there must be an opportunity there. I
3: think there's opportunity. I think your buddy Rufus Peabody is probably, is probably in on that. <laughs>
0: All right, so I'm gonna, I, I think you have to say, look, we're not sure these teams are equal, so I think your 95% confidence interval is unless you think for some reason they're a higher scoring or lower scoring or higher variance, which we don't, I think, have reasons to believe, I, you gotta ooch it up and now it's gonna be some absurd and, thing and, like twenty eight points. And so I'm yep.
1: gonna shrink that down because he's talking about the average team. Right. This is a super Bowl. I don't think people are tr- geared up, they're right? ready. I don't think it's true at the extremes. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna come up with a much lower interval, much closer in. I will say if you gave me let's even let's just say a twenty to one bet, okay, twenty to one odds bet, and you said to me, Eric, I can take plus or minus, I'll even say seventeen. Which is, cons- I mean, you're saying, wow, oh. that's a risky man. Yeah, I would take that. Bet. Would take Let that me bet. understand where you're. I would
0: You're saying that that standard deviation. That standard deviation, that standard deviation is a, for for all matchups. That's where correct. A lot of times, there's a great difference in ability.
3: That is correct. Can I say what he's saying is he's willing to risk a hundred dollars to win five on that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's what I'm okay. saying. I would but his answer is 17. But I like the logic. I like the logic that maybe among two of the best teams yeah, in the league, that's going to be smaller. But, you know, it it, it, um, it raises an interesting question about the history of the Super Bowl. For decades, Super Bowls were less competitive than expected. Yeah. They were a disappointing game. It was famously disappointing I to watch the actual I don't they were less competitive. Hold on, edited. hold on. But let me just finish the empirical observation. And then it flipped. About 20 years ago, it's flipped, where now we've had a stream of kind of as as you would expect if two of the best teams in the league are playing each other. So I don't know what explained the problem in the first 30 years of the Super Bowl, but it, it has apparently changed. At least it seems to have changed.
1: Well, in the last two minutes that we have, I'll give you my 15-second hypothesis. Maybe data and scouting has minimized that there's something that's the going probability to probability to blow out? Yeah, because teams are now so well scouted on each other that they can, back to what Bucky said, teams can actually adjust very quickly. I'm that's gonna, my
3: theory. I'm going to take my 15 seconds and point out that I don't think anything new has happened. I think despite the fact that there's a big spread, that becomes, that because that's because the tail probabilities are big, and that if you look at the normal curve, it is dense around the middle, mm. and it's much more likely that we have close... Close to Super Bowls and then we have blowouts. But blowouts just happen much more frequently than you think. No, no, not you look at the data. One in twenty, man, 20 so blowouts should happen. One in twenty. Well, the last the blowout, blowout, was, was blowout was last blowout? There's been a blowout in but the last in ten the, years. The
0: first thirty years it was absurd. It happened so often happened my, too often. My numbers have gone up. I'm Pats, I'm stronger on Pats. I'm gonna go I'm pushing, you know, three, four points on Pats now. I, I would I would give the points. Even though my data are the other,
3: direction. all right, all right, I'm staying with the Rams. Maybe I've, I'm taking the points. I'm particularly if you're giving me four. I'm absolutely <laughs> taking and, and the
1: my points. bet for all our listeners out there is I'm teasing the Rams and the over. So I'm going to take the Rams plus nine or eight and a half, and I'm going to take the plus over fifty. I, I get to add six. I'll tell you how a tease works after the show. Oh, I
3: see. Okay, well, I'm doing. I'm sticking with the Rams with my three four i'd love your four um and i'm still taking with the under
0: all right fellas well that has been two hours a very special edition of wharton Moneyball down here live from radio row in atlanta in advance of the super bowl a lot of fun from kate massey eric bradlow audi weiner many thanks to our producer Matty dots who's run this whole thing and to our guests looking forward to the game on sunday we'll catch you again next week between now and then enjoy your sports